Hold on. Have I started? Oh, I've started. Sorry. Sorry, I was doing something. I've started. Hello. Good evening. Seven o'clock-ish. It's Facebook Live, and I'm here. And you're there. So uh, thank you very much for um, engaging tonight. We've got some questions already on the on the old chat, which is always good. Just fiddling with my rubber bands. Olivia's here. Hi, Olivia. Nice to see you. And she's on the home. Oh, she's probably home. And Roseanne's here. And Roseanne's got a question straight in, which is how to do it. That's how you do it, Roseanne. That's how it's done. So um, if, you, if you've got any questions, just chip in like what Roseanne has done. Speak proper like what I do. Um, so it's a bit similar, actually, to... Um, We've got one of my questions here. But anyway, let's get straight in, straight in with it. Let's not mess about because we've got a few questions here tonight. So uh, Roseanne saying, how long roughly does the numbness last after a TT? So there is often numbness after a tummy tuck, TT, I mean tummy tuck. Um, and it is often, it's it's quite common to have numbness after a tummy tuck. It is often in the bit of skin between your belly button and the, um, and the scar. And what I normally say to people is that it's quite common to get it early on and it usually settles. But if it is going to settle, it takes nine to 12 months for it to settle. So it does take a long time to settle. Um, you know, you're looking at a year for, for, the, for the numbness to settle. Now, it's not normally a big problem. Most people don't have, aren't particularly affected by it. They often mention it, but they're not particularly affected by it. And people, as I say, often mention it early on. And then late on, I think two things happen. One, it gets better. And two, you start to sort of get used to it a bit. So I think a combination of the two means that it's not really a long-term problem. But if it is going to get better, it takes nine to 12 months for it to get better. And the reason you have it is because you do quite a lot of undermining when you do a tummy tuck and you release a lot of that skin flap in order to, to bring it down. And sometimes you might interrupt the nerve supply. Sometimes you might be cutting nerves. Sometimes you might be just be pushing and pulling with them. And you can't really tell by looking um whether you because the nerves are just tiny nerves they're not they're not big nerves so obviously if you cut them it's not going to come back to life but if you just pushed and pulled them they will come back to life but when you push and pull a nerve when you when you sort of manipulate a nerve it takes about a year for it to come back to life so um that's why you don't know whether it's going to come back to life but don't worry it will hold on a minute it will be all right wait a minute wait a minute olivia's saying she can't hear don't don't do this to me olivia um have i done something wrong um right so if you can't hear me then i'll tell you what i'm going to do i am going to um do that no yeah. and say can oh man alive um right let's go old school i'm going old school going old school. Oh, what's that? Right, have we got audio? Can you hear me? Have, have we got Oh, I can hear you. Oh, hold on. People can hear me. Oh, maybe it's just you. <laughs> it's just you, Olivia. Uh, oh, that's it. That's a relief. But that, 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 I don't, that's bad for you, Olivia. I don't know what's going on then. Oh, that's good. It's not me then. It's not me. Mic number one. Mic number one. Two, one, two. Two, one, two. Phew, don't have to answer that question again. Can't remember what I said now. Keep the story straight. So it's, oh, is it that? Is that plugged in all right? Is that? Hello? Hello, hello? Um, right. Okay, so um, sorry, Olivia. It, I, it, some people can hear me. So um, uh, Helen can hear me. Roseanne can hear me. So yeah, so that's the um, thing about a tummy tuck. You often get certain uh, numbness and things, um, but it usually come back comes back to life. And that runs nicely in with the other question I've got, which I've now. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. 
sensation and numbness in brachioplasty. At what point does it return? So similar, sorry, it returns straight. So similar thing. To be honest, the thing that I've just said for the tummy tuck is the same for pretty much any operation. It's particularly common with the tummy tuck because you do the undermining. Brachioplasty, you do less undermining, but you are closing under tension, so you are sort of pushing those nerves together. Brachioplasty is slightly different. For those who don't know what a brachioplasty is, it's an arm reduction. Too much skin on the arm. And then you do you sort of tighten the skin on the arm. Now there is a nerve um, that that runs down the inner aspect of the arm that can be damaged when you do a brachioplasty, and it supplies a patch of skin on your forearm. Sorry, this is all reversed. Patch of skin on your forearm. Patch of skin here. And so sometimes that nerve can get damaged when you do a brachioplasty. So you can sometimes get paresthesia or funny feelings on your forearm, sort of past where the scar is. And it's a similar thing. It might be cut. It might be just bruised. If it's bruised, it takes about a year for it to come back. If it's cut, it doesn't come back. And you always have a bit of numbness or funny feelings on that bit of your forearm. But to be honest with you, this is like the tummy tuck. No one really ever has a big problem with it. It's not a major problem. They're those sensory nerves, obviously the sensory nerves which, which supply the, the, the sensation to the skin and there's motor nerves which supply movement. Those sensory nerves are often nerves that we'll take if we need to do nerve grafts, if someone has a problem in, a, in an important area like their fingers. And we often take one of the nerves from the leg which supplies a bit of sensation on the outer aspect of the calf. We'll take that nerve and use it to graft into the hand if someone has problems with the sensation in their hand, because sensation in the hand is really important. Some people don't really notice a bit of sensory uh, loss in their leg. And similarly, in your arm, it's not normally a big uh, a problem. It's something that's good to tell people beforehand so that, you know, they don't get annoyed if that happens. And, you know, that is a risk with a brachioplasty. You can get uh, paresthesia in that bit of arm. But as I said, it's never normally a big problem. But it does take uh, or it can take a year or so, so many months for it to come back to life. But after the first few months, everything is a bit better and you get a bit more used to it. And it's a gradual thing. So it's not suddenly a year it all comes back. It's a gradual thing. It's a gradual thing. Look at that. It is rocking off. Go. I'm, I'm losing control here. How long? Oh, I've done that. Have I? Oh, yeah. How long off the tuck? Hi, JJ. Hello. I can't hear you. Can everybody else hear? I can hear you. I can hear you fine. X and thanks you. You're very welcome, Roseanne. And then Rosie is in. Can someone with a BMI of 40 have a tummy tuck? Hmm. So that's an interesting one, Rosie. Um, so the thing about BMI, there's sort of... Um, I would say, be, I'd say I'm going to come out there, Rosie, and I'm going to say 40 is too high, in my view. It's all it's all it's all relative, and there's no law about it. But I, for me, 40 is too high, Rosie, and I think you have got a very high risk of getting a complication if you have a tummy tuck with a BMI of 40. How, when we talk about BMI and tummy tuck, the the, the number that most people talk about is 30, uh, and the reason for that is that there has been uh, studies where they looked at BMI of 30 and they say, look, if your BMI is less than 30, you've got less risk of complications than if your BMI is above 30. Having said that, I have done a, uh, I have done tummy tucks on people whose BMI are above 30 because they have lost a lot of weight and they were never going to get to 30. So some people, that is an unrealistic goal. Uh, if you have been very overweight, it's, very, it's an unrealistic goal to get to 30. Um, but uh, I think 40 is too high um personally but it's everything's on a case-by-case -case basis and i think your chances of wound healing your chances of complications like dvts pe's um chest infections pneumonias all sorts of things it's just going to be higher and for me i'm like i think it probably wouldn't be worth the risk but what i do if someone can you know i understand that people have often had a massive weight loss and have dropped their you know have had a much higher bmi and then dropped it to a low point so um I think it is not unreasonable to do tummy tucks on people who have BMIs higher than 30 on a case-by-case -case basis. And we would take on board how much weight they've lost, how much weight they want to lose. So certainly if you want to lose more weight, so that's the first thing I'd say to you, look, are you happy with your BMI? Because you might say, look, I'm not happy, but I find it really hard to exercise and what have you with this apron. And I totally understand that. But I'd say to you, look, you need to get that BMI down to get a better result. I don't know how, and I understand that it is more difficult when you've got the apron, but, uh, 
that the first thing is get it down to where you're comfortable with. The problem comes if you say, look, I'm happy with my BMI 40. I don't want to reduce it or, you know, so you want to get your BMI to where you're happy and you're comfortable. The problems come when people say, well, look, I'm happy and comfortable at this BMI and it's still, you know, over 30. So that's when we have to have a discussion and weigh up the pros and cons. So, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a dubious, it's a dubious one, but I'm going to say, I'm going to come out there and say 40 is a bit high, but, you know, case by case, I think, you know, you can still do it over 30, but I think 40 is too high. And I think you've got, the reason I'm saying that is for your benefit, because you've got a very good risk of a complication and the complications can be big. A tummy tuck is a big operation and you can have significant complications. So I think that is um, something to consider. So Olivia says, wait, I can't hear anything. Elaine says, hi. Hi, Elaine. Long time no see. What's up? What are you doing? I'll have to look at your profile. Hope you're doing well. Um, Olivia's going to cry the one week I'm here and everything malfunctioning. Okay. Um, Elaine, how often should you have a checkup after having a mole removed? That was malignant. Um, good one. Uh, so it depends, uh, Elaine, on the type of mole. Um so there are different types of mold. There are, sorry, there are different types of malignant moles, I guess. Um, broadly speaking, there's three types, I suppose. There's melanoma, there's BCC and SCC, basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And we can probably dilute, divide it further just into two types, melanoma and non-melanoma, really. Um, you know, there's non-melanoma skin cancer and melanoma skin cancer. Melanoma skin cancer is worse than non-melanoma skin cancer. Melanoma skin cancer is a, a melanoma is a brown mole that goes bad. A BCC or an SCC is usually a, a, a more of a fleshy colored uh, lesion. Uh, their skin color, they're red, they're often itchy, they bleed. Uh, they don't look like moles so much um, and they're less of a worry than a melanoma. So often with a, certainly with a BCC, maybe less so with an SCC, once it's removed, it's cured. So a BCC, uh, basal cell carcinoma, you don't really need any follow-up once it's, once it's removed. Completely, you send it off histology, check it under a microscope, it's completely excised, that's it, you're cured, you don't need any follow-up. An SCC can spread, so as an SCC is a bit more of a worry, so you might... This is all not written in stone and it depends. And there's um, certainly in the NHS, there's guidelines and things. But, you know, you might be followed up for a couple of years, two or three years for an SCC for a melanoma. Oh, so it's melanoma. OK, right. OK, Good. she said it's melanoma for a melanoma. Again, it depends on how the thickness of the melanoma. So there's different thicknesses of melanoma depending on how high risk they are. So a thin melanoma um, is less, obviously, like less than a millimeter thick will be less of a risk. And there's also melanoma in situ, which is even less of a risk. And then thicker melanomas are actually more of a risk. But broadly speaking, um, it, it's the sort of benchmark is like 10 years. 10 years is sort of normal follow-up for a melanoma. Um, I think more and more, particularly in the NHS, they're getting towards doing less follow-ups because what they've done is they've looked at people who have recurrence, who have something come back with their with their melanoma. And what you find is actually most of the recurrences are actually picked up by the patient. So actually following people up um, for, for many, many years is, you know, you've got a question, certainly when you've got limited resources, is that a good use of resources? When actually, if you just uh, educate patients and say to patients, so no matter what type of skin cancer you've had, I would say to you, and even if you don't have the skin cancer, look out for lesions, you know, and go and see doctor, the doctor if you get a mole or a spot or something changes. Um, that is where the most probably the most effective way of following up a skin cancer is to educate patients and say to them what to look out for, um, uh, to tell them what to look out for. And, and you don't necessarily actually need to monitor even melanoma. You don't necessarily need to follow up patients as long as they are of sound mind and they are going to come back if they get another spot or if something comes up or if something starts bleeding, itching, you know, and, and they, they get something or you know, they develop a lump if they're going to come back. So um, 10 years is sort of normal uh, for a melanoma, but the most important thing is um, be vigilant yourself because most of the things come up with your own, um, uh, you, you notice most of the things rather than the doctor. Rosie says she's thinking of getting to 35. I think Rosie, I think 35 is a lot more realistic in terms of surgery than 40. I think 35 is still high and it's a long way to go from 40. So good luck with that, because that will be not be easy. That'll be a challenge. But I think that's a lot more realistic than 40. Um, 
So, you know, 35, I'll be like, oh, yeah, maybe we can talk. Ooh, the deal, you know. Uh, if you can get it down lower, 33, now we're talking. But uh, anyway, um, good to see you, Elaine. Nice to see you, although I'm not seeing you, but um, hope you're well and hope you're, yeah, I'm, you know, hope you're all right in terms of the question. Um, so, when can I sleep on my side after brachioplasty? People often ask me when they can sleep on their side and uh, not even after brachioplasty. Again, brachioplasty is an arm reduction um, after all sorts of surgery. Well, usually breast surgery because that's probably the most of what I do. Um, well, if, if it was up to me, I'd say you can sleep on your side whenever. You know, um, if it's not up to me because you're not my patient. So you've had a, I would always say talk to your surgeon. And if your surgeon said you shouldn't sleep on your side, which presumably they have because that's because you're asking the question, when should I sleep on my side? Do what they say. But if it's up to me, I don't tell people not to sleep on their side to start off with. So you could have slept on your side from the start. And I normally say that, you know, from my view of sleeping uh, is more sleeping well is more uh, important than worrying about. Um, well, I don't know what they'd be worried about sleeping on your side of the brachioplasty. But um, anyway, whatever they're worried about. Um, yeah. So, yeah, talk to your surgeon. But I would let you know, I don't tell people not to sleep on their side. Um, Look at that. This is not a ringer. This is a real question, right? I should put this question in every week. Where can I buy your book and how much is it? Well, since you ask, what, what do you mean this one? I mean this book here, this book that, I, that I've written. Yeah. Okay. That's what you mean. Um, you can buy it on Amazon, but it's 12, it's 12.99, I believe on Amazon. Yeah. 12.99. Um, it's 12.99 on Amazon, but I give it away because um, I don't really um, rely on the uh, on the proceeds, fortunately, of my book. Um, and I'm not trying to do it for a business, uh, for a business and for a, for a venture. So I, uh, you get it from neveraccepttolivefromstrangers.com. Now, if you get it from there, you, there is a postage and packaging. Now, I've been to the clinic. So if you come to the clinic, we give it to you if you come to the clinic. But, um, you know, because I, I, I do, I'm happy to give it away. But there is a postage and package, I think, if you go on the website. But um, yeah, you get it from the website and uh, or Amazon, but it's more expensive on Amazon. And uh, yeah, so yeah, go to the website, I would. Uh, or come to the clinic and we'll give you one. Uh, Elaine, thank, uh, oh, all right, sorry, thank you. See, Olivia's, thank God she can hear me. Thank God for that, people. iPhone and iPad wouldn't work, goodness me. So you're on your computer. Stick with the computer, Olivia. I'm not big on the iPhone, iPad, all that stuff. Stick with the computer. I like my, like my laptop, me, personally. Um, what we got? What we got? We got how soon after surgery, brackets, TT, that's tummy tuck, can you have reflexology? I thought, I, I said I didn't know about this. I do know about this because my wife's had reflexology, so I do know what it is. It's the foot thing. It's the foot they do things to your foot and it and it refers to your body. So I, I am from it. So I Google it, but I didn't have to Google it. Um, so the answer is uh, what I said to the patient was it depends on where they go for the reflexology, because if the you know, if, there's no there's no time that you can, you know, you can have it straight away is the answer. Um, but if you have to drive to the reflexology, maybe two or three weeks before you'd be driving. Now, in this situation, the patient has said that the reflexology person comes to their house. So if they come to your house, you can have it straight away. Now, I've got to say, a tummy tuck is a big operation and you will feel knocked back. So you're probably going to feel knocked back for that first week at least. You're going to feel tired. You're going to feel jaded. And I would imagine you wouldn't want visitors at your house for the first week. Uh, if you feel that it does you great help, then you can have it in that first week. You'll probably be in bed and a bit bent over. But I would say, you know, give it that first week. You'll probably feel a bit more mobile after the first week and a bit better in yourself. But in terms of the actual doing of it, because it's just, you know, working on your foot, you can have it whenever. Great question, though. Do you like that question? Um, what's that, Olivia? Is that a smile? Yeah, I hope it's a smile, not gritted teeth. Um, uh, this is a good one. I like this one. How long should you keep a breast expander in? Uh I have a, uh, how long should you keep a breast expander before exchange? Is there a time scale and can it cause problems if kept in too long? Thanks. So what this is referring to is a, uh, a breast expander. A breast expander is um, an implant that you put into the breast and you blow it up. So it has a it has a, a reservoir which you can fill with fluid and it usually has a well, pretty much always has a port 
and the port is usually a remote port so it's a it's a, like a little tube and a little button that you can feel under the skin a bit like a gastric band that you can put a needle in it's got a self-sealing valve that you pull a needle in and blow it up or it's got an integral port which is on the expander where you use a magnet and you locate it and you put a needle in a similar sort of concept it's a sort of membrane that you can put a needle in and when you take the needle out it seals itself so you can blow it up and um, it's usually used in breast reconstruction so it's usually used in breast reconstruction because there's a lack of skin and it's for a delayed breast reconstruction so someone who's had a mastectomy who um, has had the skin all removed and it ha had the, the breast removed and so got no breast and you want to create a breast and if you want to create it with an implant what you can do is obviously you, you can't put a fully sized implant in underneath the skin because it'd be too tight so you put an expandable implant in you put a uh, put it in flat you blow it up a little bit stretch the skin leave it for a few months then blow it up a bit more and you gradually blow it up to stretch the skin now there's two types of expander there's a uh, tissue expander and there's an expandable prosthesis. So that's the first question that I'd have. So a tissue expander is literally an empty bag that you blow up. An expandable prosthesis is a an implant. It's got silicone shell and a silicone gel like an implant has, but it's got inside, it's got a central reservoir that you can expand to make it bigger. So um, a tissue expander is always a temporary thing. It's a thing that's just, just it's an empty bag that's used to stretch the skin. Uh, whereas an expandable prosthesis can be left forever. It can be, you blow it up to the appropriate volume and then you can leave it forever. You don't have to remove it. So that's number one, is an expandable prosthesis or a tissue expander? So let's just assume it's a tissue expander because if it's expandable prosthesis, as I say, you can leave it forever. If it's a tissue expander, uh, and again, you say you still have these in the breast, you have to leave it for a few months in order to let that skin sort of accommodate to the stretched level and then you would exchange it for a definitive prosthesis now the, the question is how long uh, what was the question how long should you keep an expander so i would say three months would be normal to leave the expander once it's up to full volume before exchanging it for the definitive implant um is there a starting sale can it cause problems if kept in too long no it can't cause problems if it's kept in too long the only problem if it's the only problem with it is that usually they're not built to stay in forever. They don't have much shape and it often doesn't look very good. Um, a, a tissue expander, they're often quite just sort of round and they don't look very good. Whereas if you exchange it for an implant, again, if you're doing this for reconstruction, which I'm assuming is for reconstruction, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming it's for reconstruction. So when we do breast reconstruction, we pretty much always use teardrop shaped implants because they have the shape of a breast. Whereas a tissue expander will be just a round thing, which is just generally stretching the skin. So you probably want to have it changed uh, because the shape will be better with a definitive implant and you won't have the port uh, as well. But you don't have to have it changed. There's no problems with keeping it in too long. So in answer to your question, is there a problem leaving it too long? No, there's no problems leaving it in too long. Um, but it's just not designed to stay in for, for a long time. They're designed just as a temporary skin stretching um, uh, device. So I wouldn't know why you'd have it in too long, but... Um, unless there's a reason if you got ill or something and couldn't have it changed, then I'm sure that's fine to leave it in a bit longer. Um, right, we got questions coming in left, right and centre now, people. This is uh, it's a smile. Nice one, Olivia. Um, right back at you. Julia, good evening. Hope you're well. Can I ask what is the best way to treat scars after surgery? Query TT. This is to heal and improve the outcome. You know what, Julia? It's funny you should say that because I've just finished this morning. I've finished doing the um, content for a new page called Scar Removal for the website. Um, uh, I think we've got a Scar Revision page. Scar. Anyway, talking all about how to treat scars. And I've got to say to you, Julia, plain and simple, I've just done a page on it on the website, which is, you know, written all this stuff. But I'll tell you the, the, uh, the uh, abridged version, time. No question. Number one, time. Time is the best thing for scars. Numero uno. I normally let them all heal before doing anything. So personally, I leave things six weeks before doing anything. So the first six weeks, nothing. Nada, niente, just leave it alone. After six weeks, you can start doing stuff. Now, stuff means massage usually. Massage and moisturize. Because after six weeks, often the scar is quite firm, it's quite thick um, and quite red. 
So it's uh, not unusual for it to look quite quite um, thickened at the six-week stage. And it's at that stage you get your moisturizing it. And that is with just whatever moisturizer you've got. If you've got a moisturizer for your body, just use that. Moisturizing it and massaging it. That will help it to soften and settle. Um, if things don't soften, and the majority is that's it. That's it for the majority of scars. Um, mass, moisturize, massage, and time. People say, what do you massage with? I normally say, look, you know, if you've got a moisturizer, if you've got something you like, just go with that. Some people say vitamin E, aloe vera, um, you know, uh, Livia, E45, whatever. It just, people say different things. I don't think there's any evidence to say one thing's better than another. If something works well for you, just go with that. Uh, so that is the va the vast majority of scars will heal and will settle with that sort of time. Now, the, when I say time, I'm talking probably 12 months, really, you know, a year for things to really properly start to settle. So it's, it is a slow process. Now, if things don't settle properly or if you have problems or if you have problematic scarring, which is not most people, but some people do have problematic scarring, red scarring, raised scarring. Uh, you know, if there's a problem with the scarring, there are things we can do. And probably the main thing is silicone. Now, silicone uh, is marketed as scar management or scar reduction. We sell it at the clinic um, as scar reduction and they market it for all scars, but it is quite expensive. And as I say, most scars will settle with massage and moisturizing. Um, but if it is a problem scar, and certainly if it's slightly red and it's slightly raised, then silicone can help. Silicone comes in two forms. It comes in, comes in silicone sheets or it some comes in silicone gel. And it depends on the part of the body. For a tummy tuck, then uh, the sheets might be okay because you can hold them in, in your underwear. Sometimes a bit of pressure can help with the band of the underwear. You have to wear it 23 hours a day. Wear these silicone sheets 23 hours a day. Obviously take them off to wash, but the rest of the time you should be wearing the sheets. Other parts of the body, like the face and what have you, the gel is good because you can't really walk around with a silicone sheet on your face. Um, and then there are other things we can do to escalate it if things don't settle, things like steroid injections and what have you. But this is more for hypertrophic scars, keloid scars, which is more for certain skin people, skin types. Some people are more prone to keloid scars. If there's a problem with the healing, if it takes a long time to heal up, then you maybe get a hypertrophic scar, which will be a red raised scar, which will take longer to settle. So that is the um, that is the thing. For those, so Olivia says, scar healing cream, Contralubex. Olivia, what on this earth is Contralubex? I've got no idea what Contralubex is. Um, Julia says, what about silicone scar sheets? Yes, silicone scar sheets are um, good, but as I say, they are good for uh, red raised. I'm Googling Contralubex as we speak. Um, Contralubex. Um, so yes silicone sheets are good for raised scars you can get contra oh is it contract contract tubex is it yeah contract tubex blimey o'reilly here we go this is um this is good isn't it googling it flipping heck contract tubex treating scars successfully um right uh what is it what is it um find out more um i'm looking at contract tubex now and is it silicone to be honest with you most of them are silicone i'm assuming it's silicone can i just assume it's silicone and uh we just assume it's silicone there's lots of different makes there's lots of different types um but Let's just assume it's silicone. So yeah, the problem is that a lot of these things say they've got great scars and they show a picture of a scar that's been treated with uh, with, uh, with the, the, the gel, but um, scars will settle whatever, you know. So that's the thing. They say, look at this scar now, look at it six months later after we've used contract tubex or, you know, silderm or coat or, you know, whatever, then it's, 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 um, it's time that heals most scars. So, um, so there you go. Livia got that in India after the eye bag removal. Okay. Well, yeah, it looks like it's a silicone type thing. And as I say, and certainly eye bag scars settle so well, very, very rare to get a bad eye bag scar. 
So, um, but yeah, no harm in using them. No harm in using them. They are expensive, the silicone gels, but there's no harm in using them. So it's uh, it's 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 fine to 